Hello and welcome to the new Psychology of Depression, a series of programmes with me, Dr Danny Penman, and Professor Mark Williams of Oxford University. In the previous programme, we looked at the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And in this programme, we're going to look at the impact mindfulness has on the brain. Mark, one of the most interesting things I think about uh, mindfulness is the impact it has in real time on the brain through various brain imaging studies. Can you describe those for us? Yeah, there's now been a number of uh, studies. One of the things about mindfulness is it came on the scene as a secular practice and as a way of dealing with stress and depression at the same time that our ability to look right into the brain as people were actually thinking, doing tasks and so on, opened up as well. So there's something called functional magnetic resonance imaging. And what that does is to effectively look at what changes are happening in real time in the brain as you're doing tasks. There's also structural MRI, which can take a very accurate picture of the structure of the brain. So both of these have led to important discoveries. For the first thing, if you just look at the structural work on the brain, somebody called Sarah Lazar in America has done some fascinating work showing that long-term meditators, people who have been meditating for maybe 10 years, show structural differences in the brain. In one sense, it's not surprising that learning a skill changes the brain. After all, uh, if you learn juggling, if you learn to play the piano, there's going to be long-term changes in the brain. That's why you can sit down after 10 years of learning the piano and play it. It's going to be different, and that difference has to be encoded in the brain. What's different about this is that in the playing the piano or in juggling, you're actually doing something with your hands in relation to the outside world. You'd expect changes in the brain there. What Sarah Lazar found was that mental training, that is this meditating, mindfulness meditation, in which you sit on a chair and just notice your mind wandering and bring it back, notice your mind wandering and bring it back, that that itself, if you do that for a few years, actually changes the brain. Now, the question is, what does it change? One of the most interesting parts of the brain that it changes is the part of the brain called the insula. Now, other research shows the insula is like a sort of a, a junction of body sensations. It switches on when you have any strong body sensations, but it also has links. It links together uh, sensations from the surface of the body, sensations from the inside the body, the viscera, for example, you know, what your tummy does when it flips over, but also has projections to the cortical, the other areas of the neocortex at the frontal uh, part of the brain. So it's a bit of a junction. And people have found, for example, that the insula lights up when you're doing a task that demands empathy. When you see somebody else in pain, a loved one in pain, then the insula lights up. And if it doesn't light up, then you don't feel empathy. So the fact that you get long-term changes in this part of the uh, cortical surface of the brain is, I think, extremely important. And some people have said this is a very important part of the brain for uh, being able to, to feel the feelings of other people, to have compassion for other people, to have kindness towards other people. Now, this is not just kindness towards other people, it's actually kindness towards yourself as well, because in depression and many other mental health problems, people feel very unkind towards themselves, very unkind. They are their own worst critic. Therefore, the ability to cultivate kindness and compassion is really important. Does it take 10 years or do the positive effects begin to kick in after, I don't know, a few days or a few weeks? 
This is one of the fascinating things. Norman Farb, working in Toronto with Adam Anderson and Zindel Siegel, have done research on just eight weeks of mindfulness training using an MBSR program in which people come and, and do, the, uh, do the program for eight weeks, but they look at them either before or after. And what they find is something really interesting. First of all, and it involves the insula as well, if you get people to uh, focus on their body, for example, and never done mindfulness before, what tends to happen, and you can see it in the brain, is that not only do they focus on their body or on the experience of something in moment to moment, but they start to think about stuff. In other words, it spreads to thoughts, memories, a lot of thinking about the self and so on. And you see this parts of the brain involved in self-processing lighting up as well. Now, when you learn mindfulness, you learn to focus on the body and you learn to stay with the experience of sadness or anxiety or irritability and stay with that through the body sensations without it creating a story about things. And in their studies, they find that that's exactly what they can see in the brain. After eight weeks, you see that the insula can light up as people are able to focus on the experience, on the raw experience having an emotion, for example, but then it's uncoupled from those parts of the brain that are, as it were, telling you a story about or thinking about stuff. We know from lots of other laboratory experiments, this ability to experience things without thinking about them turns out to be really important because a lot of the problem in depression, in worrying, anxiety, in eating disorders are, is overthinking. You think too much about things and you take a problem and actually make it worse by thinking too much. The fact that you can see in the brain these things getting uncoupled is I think really, really hopeful. We've got a biological marker, as it were, of this experience being able to to deal more wisely with things rather than just always overthinking and problem-solving about them. But what does this mean in the real world? Does it mean, for example, we come off the herd trigger, which means if we find our path blocked, we react less angrily or with less anxiety or with less stress? So we've known for years that the fight-and-flight mechanism is a very evolutionary old system. If you see the ear of a tiger, you don't want to be playing around anymore. You need to freeze, and then, when it's safe to do so, you make a dash to safety. And this is very automatic, it's very old. It preserves your life in dangerous situations. Now, uh, part of this system is what's called the amygdala. It's deep in the brain, it responds to anything that's highly arousing, and most particularly to fearful situations in which you need to take direct action. In fact, we know that from Joseph Ledoux's work that this amygdala, when you see something that looks like a snake, there's a pathway that goes straight from the eyes through the thalamus to the amygdala, and that does that before you've even started to think. You've started to react before you can actually think about what you're doing. What's interesting is the amygdala was designed to deal with real threats in the outside world. But human beings have evolved another extraordinary capacity and that's the capacity to have language and to have inner language. We can think, we can imagine, and we can bring back memories from a long time ago, or we can create an image of something that might happen next week, might happen next year. And it's almost as if having created or simulated these events in the mind's eye, as it were, then the amygdala reacts as if it was a tiger, or feel real. 
Now, nobody can run fast enough to get away from their own imagination because the imagination goes with them. Nobody can run fast enough to get away from their own sort of imagined fears. And yet the amygdala doesn't know that, you know. So what happens is that, you know, if you look at gazelles, for example, on the African savanna being chased by a leopard or a lion, they run like crazy. But when the lion has dragged one gazelle off or has given up the chase for the day, the gazelles go back to grazing. They have to graze to live. And the fact that they're grazing quite calmly five minutes later shows that their amygdala, which was going crazy five minutes ago, has now gone back to normal. They've switched on the fight and flight when they needed it, but more importantly, they've switched it off when they don't need it anymore. In humans, we can switch it on, but because of our imagination and our memory and our worries for the future, which we can bring up right now, unlike the gazelles, we don't switch off the amygdala. And now, is that true in neuroscience? It turns out to be wonderfully true in an extraordinary way. So David Cresswell, working in the United States, has put people into the scanner who are known to vary in how mindful they naturally are. So some people are very mindful, they notice things in the environment, they taste their food, they don't rush around so much. But other people in the scanner, they're the sort of people that are always rushing from one task to the other to keep up. They're always, they never taste their food, they never notice where they are. Guess what happens in the scanner? It looks very much from his work as if people who rush around all the time, who are, as it were, mindless, their amygdala is chronically overactive. It's like the amygdala is stuck on the on position. They're the gazelles that don't stop running. And so lots of people who rush from task to task in their daily life thinking they're being creative, it's just an illusion of creative productivity. It's actually, as far as their brain is concerned, they're running away from something. That has very pervasive effects because it's going to affect how you process a lot of other information. In effect, you're saying that uh, mindfulness is powerful enough to alter even the most deep-seated, primitive almost, parts of our brain. Absolutely. We've mentioned the insula, that's part of the cortex, but we've mentioned the amygdala, which is part of the more ancient emotion system of the brain. But there are sort of intermediate things. There's something called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. We know that that switches on or responds if you feel, as it were, either in pain or social pain. So let's say that you, know, you were part of a threesome throwing a ball to each other and suddenly the two people you were playing with started throwing the ball to each other and they missed you out. You'd start to feel, oh, you know. Oh. Now, you can do an experiment in which you put people in a scanner and you pretend that you're playing a game with them and they're part of a game, a threesome, a sort of ball-tossing game on the computer. And then you start making the game actually deliberately look as if you're ex being excluded, as if these other two people are playing with each other and not with you. And what you find is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex actually begins to respond to this as if you were in pain. It's like a so you're feeling socially excluded. And uh, some research now from the States, again, finds that people who are high on trait mindfulness have much less effect. They don't feel so socially excluded. They're able to sort of take a step back from that. But people who are more in this rushing around mode all the time, who are frantically rushing around trying to get the job, they are much more sensitive to this. They actually feel excluded at the drop of a hat. They're on this hair trigger, not just for a tiger, but for feeling actually in the out group as well. So it's not surprising that they're spending a lot of the time trying to, trying to find a way into the in group because they're so sensitive to these little signs of social exclusion.
exclusion. And this is not just real social exclusion, this is imagined social exclusion. Again, in the real world, if we damp down on the negative pathways of the brain and enhance the so-called positive pathways of the brain, does that enhance creativity and productivity and as well as self-esteem and general levels of happiness? Absolutely. So there's a study now in the Netherlands that have looked at people going through an MBCT programme. They find that it reduces negative affect, but it also increases well-being. The reduction in negative affect flows from the ability, the greater ability people learn to let go of nasty things from their past so they don't ruminate and dwell on them. The increase in well-being actually doesn't so much relate to that as the ability to really notice day-to-day, moment-to-moment living, tasting things they've absolutely forgotten to taste, beginning to see small things like flowers, trees, the smile of a child, which you'd normally just ignore. It doesn't take more effort to notice these. You just need to notice that you're not noticing them. That's enough. You then, as it were, wake up. So this increase in well-being is extremely important. But there's something else goes on as well. Some other brain studies done, first of all, by Richard Davidson in Wisconsin in America, and we've replicated his work here in Oxford, looks not at fMRI studies, the imaging of the brain through that, but uses EEG, that's the electroencephalogram. Those take measures from the surface of the brain, and it looks at the electrical activity that goes on all the time, the humming, buzzing sort of thing that goes on normally in the brain. What Richard Davidson found was really interesting, that people who were always avoiding things, who didn't like what was going on in their mind or going on around them, the brain gets into a pattern in which the right side at the frontal area of the brain is more active than the left. And if you show somebody a nasty photograph, then that's what will happen to all of us. The right side will be more active than the left. However, if you show somebody a photograph of a smiling child, suddenly you find it switches. The left is now more active than the right. For years, we thought that was a sort of a a set point that you couldn't change. This was a personality characteristic. What Davidson showed with John Kabat-Zinn and others was that through doing an eight-week mindfulness course, an MBSR course, you could switch this so it was more likely to be more activation on the left than the right, more into this approach mode than the avoidance mode. What's more, a few months later, people had maintained this neural pattern, and the more that they maintained it, even in the face of sadness, because they also used the Prokofiev and found that normally when people listen to that, the brain signature shifts more to the left. But in this case, they were able to maintain that sense of being open and willing to experience their emotions. And what's more, those who were most able to do that were able to show differences in their immune system. So the response to an influenza jab, for example, showed that their immune system, the state of their body, was in a more healthy state. So how long each day do you need to meditate to gain all these benefits? Well, I think people need to try it out for themselves. There's no prescription. There's no prescription. In our clinic, people do 40 minutes a day. People who've been seriously depressed for, for many years, they start at the very first day, day one, they start with 40 or 50 minutes a day and then carry on doing that six days a week for eight weeks. If people don't have serious clinical problems, then they may find shorter meditations more useful. 
And as you know, in the Frantic World book, we offer people something, a mi one minute, we offer them a three minute, but the standard meditation for the first week is eight minutes to be done twice a day. And what that allows people to do is not just to get used to long meditations, but to the transition from not meditating to meditation. Here, people, if you want to get up in the morning, that's the most difficult thing to do, get up and meditate. Or stop the tele television and go and meditate. Or make that transition into meditation. So what we've done in our book is to use shorter, more frequent meditations where it's more likely that people will be able to fit them into their life. Then when they get there, then they can decide how long to stay there. Okay, how little can I get away with then? I think the attitude of going for it is how much do you need to do to discover what needs to be discovered? Because meditation is, is a training program in which you start to find or discover that you get insights into the patterns of mind that are getting you into sort of entangled in your day-to-day -day life, in your relationships and so on. As you meditate more uh, on a daily basis, you begin to discover more. So that the invitation is to meditate as frequently and for long enough that you begin to want to do it on the basis you say, what are we going to discover today? Not how little can I get away with, because that's a sort of that is the activating the avoidance mode of the mind, and therefore we know the avoidance of the mode actually sets up a rather narrowing, a constricted view. An interesting experiment was done some years ago, in which this illustrates these different approaches to life in general. Uh, for example, uh, what this experiment did, it's called the mouse in the maze experiment. Um, they had students do a series of simple paper and pencil tests. The first one was to um, help a little mouse get out of a maze, you know, and get home safely. The second one was one of those creativity tests. How many uses can you think of for a brick? And then somebody analyzes them to look how creative are they. I mean, for example, if you just say build a wall, it's not terribly creative. But uh, one person came up with, oh, pound it down to dust, add water and use it for face paints. Well, that's slightly more creative. So you can, you can use that as a sort of creativity test. Well, here the students were doing this creativity test, but first of all, they did this, help this mouse get out of a maze, out of this labyrinth. Unbeknownst to the students, there were two versions of this maze. So they all had to put their pencil on and get the mouse out of the maze. It took about two minutes. They all did it successfully. But in one version of this cartoon maze, the little mouse, just before he got out and got to his uh, mouse hole on, the, on this picture, there was a, a lump of cheese waiting for him to feast on before he went to bed. In the other, the other half of the students had uh, no, no cheese, but there was a picture of an owl floating overhead, ready to swoop down and, and catch the mouse in its talons at any moment. So here were these groups of students, some of them getting the mouse out of the maze with their, with their pencil on the paper, and in the corner of their eye there was cheese. The other students in the corner of their eye was an owl. Now, all the students did the, the maze perfectly well in a couple of minutes, but the students who'd done this two minutes on the maze with the owl in the corner of their eye as they did it, they were 50% less creative on the creativity task. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is. It's amazing. <laughs> it, really it was published is. in one of the big psychology journals a few years ago. And not only did it affect that, it affect people's memory as well. People were more cautious. And when you think about it, it makes sense. We, we have evolved to look out for predators. And 
millions of years ago, we needed to look out for predators. And when you see a predator, you don't get playful. You don't get creative. You basically, like a rabbit to a rabbit hole, you want the tunnel vision to lead you from here to your rabbit hole. You don't look either way. What we now know is that, of course, when people are in avoidance mode all the time, then it's a problem. So that affects meditation as well. If people are saying, how little can I get away with? Then, of course, it's a very legitimate question to ask. But there's just the danger that actually that's avoidance mode. So one of the things in meditation is just to notice that. To say, ah, oh, listen to that thought. That's probably the avoidance mode turning up. Just smile at yourself. There's no need to give yourself a harsh judgment. Just smile at yourself saying, hey, my mind's seeming to be in a frantic mode. So this illustrates why I need to get on my cushion or my stool or my chair and do a few minutes of meditation in which you recognize these patterns of the mind, like weather patterns moving across the landscape and begin to learn to smile at them. This is clearly a rapidly evolving area. Over the next 5, 10, 20 years, how do you expect it to pad out? One of the things that we've learned is this tunnel vision doesn't just affect you know, your attention. It affects things like suicidal depression as well. Um, we now know from our research in Oxford that when people have been suicidal in the past, if they get a little bit of sad mood, unlike anybody else who's been depressed, even depressed many times, if they've been depressed and suicidal, this tunnel vision doesn't just affect what they see, it affects what problems they can come up with. We need more research to notice how those signatures of suicidal depression can be avoided. Our research is beginning to show that some people naturally come up with mindful statements there to help them through. Other people don't and we need to know how we can best help them. The other thing is that we want to prevent the very first depression. So we're working closely with mindfulnessinschools.org which is a schools mindfulness program. That's the UK version but there are many programs in the United States and all over the world actually teaching meditation to school children. It turns out they love it. They can do it really well. With a good teacher who knows about mindfulness, who's got a mindfulness practice, it doesn't take very much for children to go, wow, this is amazing. Uh, so introducing it into schools is really important. But we can go even earlier than that. We know that couples expecting a baby respond very well to being taught mindfulness. It helps them deal with the fear of childbirth. It helps them deal with the pain of childbirth. And what's more, the evidence, early evidence suggests that it helps the bonding of the couples together through this difficult time, it can be very difficult for some couples, uh, but also the bonding with the infant, with the new baby. There's critical dance that's done between a baby and their parents. And often if the parents are depressed, preoccupied, mum or dad, then they don't do this delicate dance, this meshing with their baby. And we know that has long-term consequences for the, for the developing child. So teaching people to attend is hugely important. It's the work that Nancy Bardock started in California and we hope to start a, a European initiative based on her work here, uh, based in Oxford. What age should uh, people begin meditating then? I mean, is it suitable for five-year-olds, ten-year-olds? It can be five, six-year-olds. There's no problem, just short meditations. I mean, you can teach a child to focus on the soles of the feet, for example. You can teach a child to find a place, a still quiet space within them. Interestingly, you don't have to do it very long. Children get it very, very quickly. Of course, the brain is, is developing. You don't have to do very much. Most of us who are adults, We've trained in the thinking, analytic mind. We've never trained to actually notice our own bodies, to notice our experience, to notice what's going on in our minds. Children take to that very well.
That's really surprising because I, certainly when I was a child, I lived in a dream world. I loved it. I wouldn't change a thing, but I can't imagine at that age I would have taken to mindfulness meditation. Well, if it enabled you to ground yourself so that you could take advantage of your dream world, you might have enjoyed it even more. Uh, because mindfulness is not just about stopping your daydreams, it's about choosing. It's about allowing you to daydream if you want to, and if there are troubles uh, around, it's allowing you to address those skillfully as well. And that's what the children actually seem to get out of it. So in some of the work done in Oxford by my colleagues Ginny Lavelle and Sarah Henley, and by the Mindfulness in Schools programme, they discover, for example, in 15-year-old girls who are f feeling rather phobic of school, uh, who hate their lessons, who aren't able to concentrate, who stay awake at night, beginning to find ways that they can manage that better and their teachers, the girls and boys themselves and their parents notice the difference very quickly. Now this is all rapidly developing work. We need better trials to do this. But when people reach adulthood, there's still lots of questions we need to ask. We know that people who have bipolar disorder, for example, which is a, a very serious, it used to be called manic depression, very serious uh, problem for many people. people take to mindfulness very well, but there now needs to be trials to say, well, does it actually prevent new episodes of mania or new episodes of depression? And of course the brain science, it's, uh, uh, it's helping us know how mindfulness has its effects, how it affects different types of depression, and also which practices within mindfulness are best for whom. We have a whole range of practices, and at the moment people try out all these practices and they discover which is best for them. But I think the advance in brain science are beginning to show what is the best practice for people perhaps who ruminate and brood a lot. What's the best practice for people who are very avoidant? How can we give people different gateways in to the same sort of open spaciousness of awareness that can be shown in their brain and in their lives? I'm sure there's plenty of people who are listening to this programme would, would love to help in some way. Is, is there any way that they can? Well, indeed, if they want more details, of course, they can go to the franticworld.com website or to reading the book uh, Mindfulness, uh, Finding Peace in the Frantic World. But also there's been a book specifically written for people who are depressed, The Mindful Way Through Depression by myself and John Teasdale and Zendel Siegel and John Kabat-Zinn. And also, uh, because there's so much research to be done in the future, we're beginning to get a development campaign together at Oxford Mindfulness Centre um, as part of the university's Oxford Thinking Campaign to fund a professorship in mind and science that will be able to take this forward in the future. Over the 800 years of Oxford University, sometimes hundreds of years ago, people who wanted to make a difference, making a permanent difference in the world, uh, did so by investing in endowments for the university. So they knew that even in decades or hundreds of years' time, no matter how much the field had changed, there'd be somebody there working right on the forefront of it. And who knows where this field will be um, in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time. But by raising an endowment for a, a new professorship of mind and science to work on this, we know that wherever the field is, somebody will be working on the forefront in the future. And if anybody wants to help, of course, they can go to OxfordMindfulness.org um, or through the university's uh, own website and discover the development campaign that we're uh, putting together as part of Oxford University's contribution to this field. The mind is one of the most fascinating things that anybody could research, but when it goes wrong, it's one of the most tragic things to see. 
I think that certainly the 35 years that I've been working in the field of depression, on the psychological treatment of depression, I've seen many changes. I can't anticipate where we'll be in another 35 years, and I may not be around to see it, but I think committing ourselves now to saying this work is really important, and wherever we got, there's going to be people that need more treatments, more effective treatments, both to prevent depression and prevent suicide. That's what I think we need to be committed to, and that's what I'd like to see happen over the next few years. Well, it really could change the world, which is ironic for a teaching that is two and a half thousand years old. Thank you very much again.